So I saw on Twitter that you were recently in Uganda. Yeah. Was that was that business or pleasure? That or was both. business. It's, it's, it's always both. Right? It's always both. Yeah, for sure. I mean, having one of the best food in the world is always, <laughs> it's always nice. Welcome, everybody, to another episode from the Global Startup Movement. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz, and today I am joined by Julio Levalle, who is the co-founder of Puposerto and Mibosia. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, perfect. I did? Okay, awesome. Well, he is doing some amazing stuff from the standpoint of financial inclusion and impact in Latin America, and so I'm so glad to have him in studio. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. So what's it like for you, first time living in D.C.? What's what's your impression of the city and you know what's what have you been up to since you've been here? It's been a great opportunity, actually. We're part of the Halcyon Fellowship. It's a local incubator that aims to bring so- social entrepreneurs from around the world to scale the impact that their main role is to connect them with um, with the main actors that, that are working and investing in social impact. And so it's been uh, a wonderful opportunity to connect not only with organizations, but also from uh, political actors as well and, and people from, from the business itself to uh, to try to bring more growth to what we're doing in our countries. Yeah, well, what was your impression of D.C. before you came here? Because, I mean, being an American nowadays, it's it's hard to really get a full grasp and understanding of what the perception is of outside the world of what's actually going on here nowadays. Right. What's, what's your perception? My perception, because I've always, I'm an economist and I've always been interested in international development. So I know that my, always my impression has been that the main uh, headquarters for the global organizations working in international development are based here. And that is actually true. So many, uh, many organizations are based here and many organizations that work with social impact are based here. So I, and because of the contact and the work that we do, we end up meeting people that are here based in DC. Uh, not necessarily only based here but um that's always been an impression more from the political public policy side yeah and i definitely want to get more into the work that you do but i really want to start just by hearing you know what was your uh like initial foray into entrepreneurship because that, that's not a common path in you know the latin america world so how did you how did, how did you go down that path Right. I never saw myself as an entrepreneur. Actually, it was more um, like an aha moment. It was a moment where I was changing from working in the consulting world for a few years back in Peru. And there was this specific moment, 2010, the earthquake, the big earthquake in Haiti happened. And so I went there to volunteer for a few months. That was sort of uh, like an eye-opening experience because we do have poverty in Peru and many countries in Latin America, but going to Haiti was a very different experience. Just living there, seeing the, um, the people going through these very hardships was very interesting to see all the new ideas and the new businesses that were growing out of that, that specific moment. So I started exploring a little bit, working with NGOs, with social impact, and started to learn a little bit more about social ventures. So how can you actually do good, contribute to the, to the society, and at the same time make a business out of it, right? And so I started exploring that, even going back to Peru, I started working for, for a couple of NGOs and ended up in Rio de Janeiro in, in Brazil uh, doing a program with the UN uh, with social, social leaders that were um, developing social ventures, actually, uh, across Latin America. So this was 
Real Plus 20 back in 2012. And at the same time, I was uh, introduced to this innovation program from MIT that was happening in Sao Paulo. So the state right next to Rio, and this was a month-long immersion in one of the favelas, one of the common slums there in, in Sao Paulo, in the periphery of, of, the, of the main city, to uh, understand how, what are the hardships of people, what are the problems, that, the, the challenges that they have, and how can we use technology to solve those problems. And I'm passionate about technology and finances. I was telling you, I'm, uh, my background is um, an economist. And I ended up in the team working on this basic platform that would send text messages to people to help them manage their money in a better way because we, uh, we were aware of this problem of managing money back then. And so that, that was the aha moment, actually, because uh, interacting with other entrepreneurs from around the world, seeing people from many countries as part of this program, doing their small businesses, their more, small social ventures back home, gave me the confidence to to think and to say, you know what, there's something you can do, actually. You can have direct impact and, and using technology and doing the things that you do. For me, impact meant to be at a desk, uh, probably at a ministry or doing public policy and doing projects. I had actually worked for the World Bank for a couple of years and doing projects that are going to take long to have impact. But then when you see that there are some things that you can actually create, when you understand the, the real pains and you create products that are focused on the user and that go around the user and their specific needs, you realize that that's where the real change happens. Mm. And so that's where the idea for, for Papa Septo exactly. came about. Okay. And so that's when I decided to quit my job in Peru and, 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 and bet for Brazil. <laughs> and it's been 10 years now. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Well, that's been 10 years now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So... And you know, I love what you're doing because most fintech players in, in emerging markets, they focus on banking the unbanked. But the problem with just focusing on that is if you give someone in poverty a bank account, they're still in poverty. That doesn't necessarily fix it. You know, it's, it's not exactly. a full stack solution. <laughs> and so can you kind of dive into really like what... Like what was the initial foundations of, of building this and, and, and how, did you, how did you kind of put yourself in the right direction of like, this is how we need to teach these people about managing finances. Right, exactly. So uh, again, uh, we started with a methodology that was focused on the users, understanding the real pains of the user. Then we got to understand there was this huge market in, uh, we're talking about 400 million people that are unbanked and underbanked in Latin America. This is around 70% of the adult population. 400 million it, people, does, does that cover South America and Central? Exactly, okay. yeah. So that whole uh, Latin America and Central and, and South. And so you start seeing that there is a problem that is not only from Brazil, from Peru, but actually covers the whole region and many other countries around the world. We're talking about 1.7 billion people around that number that are unbanked. And on the other side, we have some other figures. We have that around 1 billion people now have access to smartphones and that they are getting on the internet more and more on smartphones. Only in Latin America, it is predicted that for uh, 2022, 90% of people that have access to smartphones are going to get on the internet through them. So this is a very big opportunity to start using that technology to start bringing people to, to the formal financial system. But back to what you were saying, 
Yes, that's when we start talking about these slangs and these concepts that we use in the industry about financial inclusion, financial health, financial literacy, right? Do we want to bring people in the system and then not care anymore about how that service is going to, to affect daily li- livelihoods? Or uh, do we create a product that is actually going to change lives and are going to have a positive impact? And that's something that we've, we question ourselves every single day. Mm, we started talking about financial inclusion, and yes, we bring people to the formal financial system, but then how do we create products that addresses the needs, the specific needs of people, and how do we measure that that is having positive in- impact in their daily lives, right? Because people don't want to, people don't wake up wanting to be financially included or wanting to be financially healthy. They want to achieve specific goals that they have for their lives. So how do we go through that funnel of personal objectives in the end? Mm. Okay. And so why, why did you decide to start in Brazil? Is that, is that just, it's just the biggest market in, in Latin America. So it's, yes, we pivoted, uh, is one of the biggest, uh, w- with Mexico They are uh, they go hand by hand and we started, we pivoted many times and we started with a mobile app that helped employees from big corporations, mid-sized and big companies to organize their finances in a better way. In Brazil and in Latin America in general, there was this period, this decade, where access to credit, loans, and credit cards became very, very easy. And so that was the the nice part. But then what happened after is indebtedness, right? And then we got into the point where 45% of the adult Brazilians had a, a type of debt that they couldn't pay. And, and And so how do we, again, go back? Yes, we're including people in the financial system, but how are we guaranteeing that they are achieving specific um, personal goals, right? And so we decided that the way to have more impact and more scale was to look at big volumes of, of people. And the way that we found out was through companies. So there are companies that do hire people from the bottom of the pyramid, and sometimes they are paid in cash. And how do we help uh, these people that are struggling the most to organize their finances in a better way? And as a Peruvian and always looking and seeing the market in the rest of Latin America, and after having validated this for three and four years now, we started looking more at micro and small entrepreneurs as well. We started working with small financial institutions in Brazil whose um, main clients were micro and small entrepreneurs that were dealing with these challenges as well. And so then that's when we became uh, a platform more focused on micro and small entrepreneurs and helping micro financial institutions or credit unions here in the U.S., to reach those clients, first, first improve the financial health of the clients that they already have, because they are looking, of course, to, to get repaid, right, if, if they're uh, lending money, and then to reach those that are unbanked. And usually that is very costly because they don't have the information. So just to put you in a, in a specific context, that means sending back, back at home in Peru, for example, that means sending a field agent for three hours out of the periphery to look for clients and to see who who has the specific um, the specific requirements that are going to make this client be trusted or not, and and then uh, be able to pay the, okay. that specific loan. And so, how do we reduce that as, uh, that operational cost so that agents can focus on something else uh, as a part of the underwriting process? And that's what we're doing. And so, would you consider yourself B two B to C? 
Yes, that's the new terminology. But okay. yeah, we work <laughs> straight with microfinancial institutions and companies. But then our end user is that micro and small entrepreneur or worker or, or person. Seems like a natural progression for most startups in emerging markets. Yes. They, they, they start off consumer, then realize you, it's if, if you're going to do a consumer facing in somewhere like Latin America or Africa, like you need to sell to 100 million people for $1. Exactly. Right? Versus, you know, the, yeah. the B2B approach where you, you sell one person for, you know, one company for $100 million. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and if you take that global perspective as well, I mean, just the, the, the main leader on fintech is China. And if you, t- you take a look at WeBank and uh, at, um, Alibaba, for example. You mean WeChat? Yeah, but WeBank is a company, right? Oh, we, actually, WeBank is a company. Exactly. Okay. That runs WeChat. WeChat is the, app, the actual app that is kind of like WhatsApp for us. Ah, I see. Exactly. And so if you take a look at that, they, um, the model that they progressed into was selling to companies, right? Alibaba to, to, to those entrepreneurs or small companies that are trading or selling. And then um, WeChat, the same thing. So, hmm. yeah, just sort of like the example of how we can include more people. And you have to see those pockets of volume to have more impact and bring more people in a faster in right. a fast way. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, talk to us about the process of taking what you had built in Brazil and kind of rebranding it, repackaging it, repurposing it and taking it over to Peru. Right. Yes. Um, this is a very good question. And usually when we talk to investors and we say we are moving from Brazil to Peru, it's kind of a, um, they get surprised because why are you moving to Peru? It's a smaller market. You should become a champion in Brazil. And we do want to become champions in Brazil. Not only Brazil, we want to become champions in Latin America, but the reason to go to Peru was exactly that, actually, to use Peru as a smaller country, as a smaller market, as a lab to expand to the rest of Latin America. Brazil has a specific context. Not only is the only country that speaks Portuguese in Latin America, we wanted to see how that solution would be tested in the rest of the countries. And that's why we, we were looking at Peru. And then so many assets that we have there. I went to school there. My parents live there. I have so many friends there. So there is this community of people that, of course, are going to help you in so many ways and get contacted with the local banks and all the things that you need that come from, um, from good connections, right, locally in, in every single market that, that you are based. And so in, in, in this sense, we needed to rebrand, as you were saying, Popa Certo, that means safe right in Portuguese. Mm-hmm didn't mean anything in Spanish. So how do we find the name that actually speaks to, to people's lives? And we have this expression in Spanish to say, you're not going to mess with my pocket. So my pocket is mi bolsillo, actually, mm-hmm. in, in Spanish. And so we say, you know what, let's call it my, uh, mi bolsillo, let's call it my pocket. And so that's how that, the name stuck, actually. So people, a lot of people like the name. And, and, and that's something that you that you decide in, in a moment that you need to put a name for the company and then it, it ends up that people like it. And so, so we, we kept it till now. And that name has gone out to uh, many other different markets. So right now we're in Peru, we're in Guatemala and in Mexico as well. So we're in those four countries. And again, as we were seeing that more microfinancial institutions and financial institutions in general are looking to partner with fintechs that are going to help them to substantially grow and reach the markets that they want to, to reach, 
but they don't have the information, we say, why not? Why don't we go there? And that's what we've been doing and, and testing the last year now that we expanded from Brazil to Peru. But what, what was the process of localizing it for Peru beyond just you know changing the name, beyond just changing all the all the languages from, from Portuguese to, to Spanish? Right. Uh, first, as any company, you need uh, to validate your market fit. So we do have a, a value proposition in Brazil. Does, it, does this value proposition make sense in, in this new market? So we partnered with two microfinancial institutions and brought their clients to the platform to see whether they were improving their financial health, to see whether they could access new financial services, and if they improved the way that they manage their finances. Once you prove that and companies are willing to pay for that, then you say this is a good market fit and then so we can start selling and going to other companies having these validated uh, indicators. Hmm. And so that's how we started expanding and then going to the, to, to the other countries that I talked about. But did you find it was, it was much more of a copy and paste to go from Peru to Guatemala and Mexico versus Brazil to Peru? It is always a copy and paste somehow, not only from our own company to a new version of our own company, but then from some other solutions that are working in other parts of the world, and you have to contextualize them to the local market, right? We always say that it's not only about copy-paste, but it is about understanding the local needs and how do you adjust specific terms. So it's not, as you're saying, it's not about only translating the app from Portuguese to, to Spanish, but it's understanding that uh, more people are cash-based in Peru than in Brazil, for example. So more people have access to, to credit cards and debit cards in, in Brazil compared to Peru or have the access points to use these credit cards. So how those specific touch points of the, of the user journey have to be changed in the app so that we can make something that is um, suitable for that market and from there start scaling. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And so I saw on Twitter that you were recently in Uganda. Was yeah. that Was that business or pleasure? That or was both? business. It's, it's, it's always both. Right? It's always both. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, having one of the best food in the world is always, <laughs> it's always nice. For sure. Well, so, okay. So yeah, tell me about your trip. Like what was the, what, what would you say are like the... Um, the things that stood out as like exact parallels between you know what's happening in, in South America's fintech ecosystem and, and Uganda. Right, um, Uganda is one of the uh, biggest countries in terms of developing technology together with Kenya. Right, so it's all the East uh, African side, and then we were talking a little bit about the uh, North African side, how they're developing technology and developing solutions that are being exported to other countries in the region as well. Something very interesting, and we talked about this in a, in a conference a couple of months ago with, um, uh, with Harvard students that, that are from Latin America, uh, was that there is very interesting to see how Africa has done the leapfrog from cash to mobile money. And how in the rest of the world, in Latin America specifically, we went from cash to cards. And now we're trying to solve the problem of having access to all the different cards. Just to, put you an, to, to give you an example, you need a different point of sales for Visa and you need a different point of sales for MasterCard in Peru. Mm. And, and, and if you have American Express, you will need another machine as well. So you need to have thousands of machines for the thousands of cards that, that, a, that a person may have. In Africa, you didn't go through that problem because that was the main challenge, not to have that, that infrastructure. However, they found a way to go from that to mobile money. Right now, just uh, 
I've been in, in East Africa many times, and you can buy a banana from the lady in the corner that barely speaks English using M-Pesa or any other local mobile money or mobile wallet in your phone, right? Yeah. So you can do that without cash. So in that sense, I see that Africa is more advanced. But then Latin, Latin America represents a lot of potential in terms of the acquisition of technology, as I was mentioning, smartphones and how people are going to get on smartphones using Internet, 90% of them, uh, in the next years. And the growing population also means that that is a big opportunity. Not only that, but also if we start talking about regulation as well, how regulation is, is helping to advance. So, yeah, if I, I'm not uh, 100% sure, but I know that Latin America after uh, East Asia is the second big market for fintech. We're talking about $380 billion of a market if we just put together um, uh, personal finances, uh, financing um, uh, people and financing micro and small companies. Only in Latin America, that's about $115 billion. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I think... I think obviously, obviously, financial inclusion, fintech has is is very important, but I think it has to exist alongside cash. I think it has to because, especially when you look at countries throughout the emerging world, like the leaders and the politicians and the rulers are here today, gone tomorrow. Yeah, and I think it's very dangerous if you have a hundred percent cashless country where there is a bad actor that gets power. Right, mm -hmm. and cash ensures that they can't just shut a certain ethnic group or certain people out of the system. I think there's a balance. I think there's a healthy balance that needs to be struck. Uh, that's, that's just my totally that's, agree that's with my you. Hot, that's my hot take. Totally <laughs> agree with you. And actually, I'm passionate about behavioral economics, and it's also about behavior. You're not gonna go from cash to digital instantly. That's right. that's one of the projects that we're developing in Mexico. We're working with a payments pl platform to help people, the lady that sells tacos in Mexico City, to start getting uh, digital payments. But then she's going to want to withdraw that money right. to give the money to their kids to go to school, for example. Yeah. Right? You cannot avoid those daily behaviors. And you, again, you need to, be, uh, to build technology that adjusts to the behaviors and then go through that process, right? Yeah. Through a funnel. Yeah, for sure. But we, we were mm -hmm. talking before this that yeah. the, um, so the, the, the big opportunity for investors coming into Latin America right now, financial inclusion, and you mentioned health, right? Those are really the big two? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and so so in, in terms of the, like, w can you I guess kind of describe what what you mean by health? Because I've come to realize that there are very big problems in emerging markets that you can't entrepreneurial way out of. Roads are one of them, mm -hmm. right? In certain infrastructure like hospitals, ports, airports, like you can't you can't entrepreneur your way out of that, right? There's there's certain infrastructure that's needed from. The, the government and from the established hierarchies that are in place. But when it comes to health, like what's, what's the opportunity there? All right. Um, that's a good question. And you're talking about financial health, right? Yes. Exactly. Oh, well, well, I guess both. Cause you mm -hmm. mentioned, I guess within Halcyon, like there's, there's, there's FinTech, there's yeah. financial health, and then there's like health and medicine and all that. Exactly. Um, but I mean, I guess it's just a, it's more of a broader question of mm -hmm. like the, the big opportunities for investors coming into uh, into Latin America right now. Right, Absolutely. exactly. Um, 
I think there are many perspectives on financial health, and I'm going to go in, into that a little bit and then go to, to the overall concept of health. I guess now more than ever, we know um, general things about health. We know that eating vegetables, that, uh, uh, that doing exercises, that probably reducing the intake of alcohol are good for your health, right? And then there are so many perspectives that literature tells us that eating broccoli is better than bacon or data tells us that doing yoga is better than just staying in the couch watching tv right so there's there are a lot of trends in that sense in the in the general perspective of health when we talk about financial health we're still discovering and working what really financial health means there are um we've been talking about financial inclusion for a long time and it was financial inclusion brings means bringing more people to the formal financial system by making it easier for them to access financial services. But then what happens? Do we care about that? And then that's where the concept of financial literacy comes in. So we educate people so that they understand better that having financial services are better for their, for their life, livelihoods, for their day-to-day activities, um, having a, a bank account to be able to, to build a credit score, to have a, a loan in the future, or to buy a house, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And so that, that came to be financial inclusion. But then we started thinking about, does that really matter to bring people to the financial system or do, do we need to go a step beyond? And so that's where the concept is pushing us right now. There's a very good survey from Gallup and the MedLife Foundation that talk about financial health from the perspective of uh, security and planning for the future. So how secure do you feel about the financial tools that you have right now for your future? That's one. And then there's another that is from CGAP that talks about financial health more on the how. So how do you spend? How do you save? How do you borrow? And how do you plan for the future? So one is more the, the actual picture and the other one is the how. How do you do that? And so that's something that we're starting to discover because back again to what we were talking about. Uh, we talk about financial inclusion, we talk about financial health, but you don't wake up wanting to be financially included or wanting to be uh, financially healthy. You want to achieve specific goals, that is pay your student loan, loan pay uh, your sc- the school of your kids, etc., and bring money to, to the house, right? And bring food to the house. And so that's where uh, we're starting to to work right now. And then to the overall perspective of health and finances, bringing back the example of East Africa, that was very interesting. I was actually mentoring this startup that is called Clinic Pesa. Pesa means money in in, in Swahili. So Clinic Pesa is kind of a pocket inside the, the mobile money wallet that they have in Uganda. And what they do is that they create this parallel credit score based on your transactions. So based on how much money you use to charge your phone, the money that you use in their time every month, how much money you put in your wallet to send to people for remittances, etc. And from there, if you are going to a clinic, for example, just for you to have an idea, 95% of Ugandans do not have health insurance, private health insurance, and public health insurance is seen as, a, as the worst in the country. So people don't really go there. They go to public, small public, um, public uh, private clinics. And so when you go there and you need to have a surgery or you, need, or you, broke, you break your arm or something like that, you need to pay up front. And people sometimes don't have the cash. So they have to go back home get worse or go to to a public hospital. And again, that's something that you were saying, right? There's this uh, context of infrastructure that we cannot change. However, what we can change is start using data to start lending people money. And so what Clinic Pesa does is 
they go through this parallel credit score and then they decide to give you money and uh, so say Andrew you have to do the surgery I'm going to give you this so that you can pay up front yeah. and so that is how they are mixing that financial and uh, part and the health part yeah, I would say the mm-hmm. the biggest trend in fintech in Africa I saw like towards the end of 2019 was all these different startups that are trying to solve for the credit score problem. Yeah, because you, you mentioned that in Latin America too. Is that is that a big problem there too? Like, is there a, is there an infrastructure like good data sources for for credit scores? There are the traditional data sources. We have FICO that generates this um, standard. Uh, credit score for the major companies and banks in, in Latin America. And then we have a smaller credit bureaus that get, again, the formal data that they usually uh, get from the banks or from uh, insurance companies. But then what happens with the cash-based uh, segments of the population? What happens with people that receive remittances, for example? Not necessarily in a formal way, right? And um, and when I say formal, it means that through a bank, but then you have somebody, a family member coming from another country, bringing you money. And so how do you ac- take all of that into account so that you can start lending and, 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 imp- and, and bringing your, your business to, to the next level, right? And it's not only small companies and, or microfinancial institutions. You can see that everywhere now. It was interesting that I was booking my Airbnb for my next trip to Guatemala, and they asked me, you don't have to pay 300 right now. You can pay 100 and they pay the rest a couple of days before you check in, which I is saw that. 20 days yeah. in the future. I got that prompt too. Yeah, and, and I was super inter- interested in that. So I started checking how that uh, works and why are they offering that to me? I don't know if they have this internal credit score uh, where they see, they've seen my transactions and they see how I pay, if I'm a, a good payer or not. And, but that's interesting, right? Because they're giving you a loan for two weeks, but it's a loan because maybe I don't have that money right now, but I could just uh, start a transaction. So I booked it for a trip that's coming up in April mm-hmm. and it gave me the option to basically pay 50% upfront and 50% the day before, but there was no interest. There was no- like, no, no interest at all, exactly. And mm-hmm. so I was like, yeah, there's no reason not to do that. Exactly. Know? Especially as an entrepreneur, you gotta, you gotta guard your cash. Yeah. And again, um, Airbnb is doing that. Clinics are doing that in, in Uganda. In Guatemala, we're working in a project where a cement company that sells uh, construction uh, materials are uh, assessing people. Um, for example, you have a new kit and you need to expand your house. You need to, be in, to build one more room. But then you don't have the money to buy the cement or, and, and all, the, all the materials that you need. And so the company is giving them the loan. But again, informality and cashback-based uh, segments that are usually the ones going through these specific stores don't know how to prove that they are able to pay for that loan. And so they are doing that as well. So if you start, think about, you start thinking about it, more companies are absorbing this role of a financial institution somehow, right? Because they want to do business and they want to keep growing. Yeah. I guess the only uh, and I actually thought about that a lot with with Airbnb because like it's why why would they offer that with no interest and why would anybody pay everything up front if they can defer it? I think maybe they're trying to maybe doing some A/B testing on that page. It's like maybe people stop there, and if they if they do that, like how many? How, what's the percentage of people that will actually book? Right, maybe five, six, seven percent more. I don't know. That's interesting. But yeah, that, that was only. I, I want to see the results. Well, yeah, well. exactly. Me too. Yeah. Um, but this has been fantastic. Is there anything we we left out or anything we didn't cover that that we we need to? 
Yeah, um, uh, I would just like to, to reinforce that, well, having the chance to live here in the U.S. or living in the U.S. or, or Europe or any other uh, developed country sometimes takes this perspective of, uh, I don't know, a partly universal access to financial services for granted, right? So we can do everything with uh, in a digital way. We can call the Uber, we can call the Lyft, we can buy everything online. But then uh, if we look to the to the other side of the world, there is there are a lot of people that are um, having challenges not to have access to foreign financial services. So even in the U.S., um, uh, some people may not know that there are around 55 million people People that are unbanked or underbanked in the U.S., and so um, th that's a huge portion of the population, if you think about it. And so, start thinking about how do we support and how do we create products and services that adjust to these people's needs, and start thinking um, how do we support as well the big companies, the big banks that are trying to make changes. And yeah, that's about it. Awesome. Well, Julio, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks to you, Andrew.